1517 was the day that changed the course of history. Now, you might not have seen this as a monumental day if you were there. An inconspicuous monk armed with a hammer, a nail, and a piece of paper shot a theological first shot that would start a war of theology that would forever change the landscape of the West. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the front door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, he unknowingly launched the Protestant Reformation. Noted church historian Philip Schaff has said that next to the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Reformation was the greatest event in history. There was no way for Luther to know the extent of the impact. This unprecedented movement was far-reaching, history-altering, as the invisible hand of God impacted not only individuals and churches, but from it, entire nations and cultures. How did it all begin? Well, Luther's 95 Thesis was a response to the preaching ministry of a man named Johann Tetzel who was selling indulgences. These were documents that were prepared in, uh, by the church and they were bought by individuals either for themselves or on behalf of others. And if they bought these, they were told that this would release or uh, relieve some of the punishment or, uh, of your sins. So Tetzel came up with a catchy phrase to raise the money. Once the coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. Now, Luther was a bit of a feisty fellow. No one will deny that. But he was also a man who had greatly wrestled with his sins and could not stand by and watch this take place. Earlier in his life, Luther discovered that he could not do enough to merit God's approval or his favor. Even though he was an incredible monk by all standards, he plunged himself into prayer, fasting, the life of asceticism. Uh, we're told that he would go without sleep, that he would endure bone-chilling cold, that he would even... Uh, whip himself on the back while praying. These were customary things during this day, and as later he commented, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. But Luther saw that no amount of ritual or self-punishment could remove the dread that he felt of God's wrath over his life. Luther's heart was radically changed as he struggled with the implications of one passage of the Bible. One verse in particular, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, when he first read this text, his eyes were drawn to that word righteous. Luther saw in himself, within his own heart, that he could never be righteous enough for God. And so misunderstanding the verse, he believed then that he would have no way to live by faith in this life. But it was later, while he was teaching through the Psalms in the book of Romans in Wittenberg, as though a ray of light had shined upon his darkened heart, that Luther grasped the meaning of this text. The righteousness of God is received as a gift by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Luther wrote of this realization, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. 
This was the realization that changed everything for Luther. It was also a realization that led to fresh understanding that salvation is by Scripture alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. And so in two days, we will be celebrating the 500th anniversary of Luther's bold declaration of justification by faith alone. A central tenet that we find in the Scriptures, a blessed reality. God has made a way for sinners to find forgiveness in Him through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It is completely a work of God. There is nothing that we can do to add or subtract from the work of Jesus. Kind of sounds like a familiar thought, doesn't it? You see, this realization of Luther's is something that we see here in the book of Colossians, isn't it? Jesus plus nothing equals what? Everything. But the thing I love about the Apostle Paul is that he doesn't just teach us these high, lofty theological concepts. He wants the high theological concepts to find their way into our real life. That's what theology does. Theology is always followed by a call to live it out. Doctrine demands duty. Creed determines conduct. Facts demand acts. So this morning, Paul's going to address an issue in the book of Colossians that we all struggle with. Why is it that after we trust Jesus Christ as Lord, we still struggle with sin? This is something that we all deal with. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself dealt with it. If you have any questions of that, you can go and read Romans chapter 7. And essentially, he's going to say to us, the only way to keep going on in this Christian life is to kill sin. So if you would, open your Bibles with me. Colossians chapter 3. We're picking up at verse 5. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, you can open your Bible. Uh, you can grab a blue Bible in the chair in front of you and uh, turn it to page 984. And as we look at this text together this morning, we're going to see two theological principles on how we deal with sin in this life. The first is this. Put it to death. Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 5 to 9. Let's read it together. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now... You must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So if you were to go up and ask the Apostle Paul, well, what should I do about sin in my life? He would have a very absolute, strong response. He would say, kill it. Put it to death. Execute it. Do not take uh, a compromise with it. Take no prisoners with it. Take whatever steps necessary to eliminate it from your life. No matter how small or how insignificant it seems, put it to death. Now, as we make our way through um, verses 5 through 9, it's easy to get lost in lists, isn't it? Paul lists a bunch of different sins and uh, we can get pedantic and get stuck in all these individual sins. But I kind of want to take our eyes up to a 
higher theological level so that we can see what he's talking about here. And really what I see in this text is he's talking about three ways that sin destroys our life, and this is why we need to destroy it. The first thing is we need to destroy sin because sin destroys our relationship with God. What is sin? What is it? Why do we not like to use the word? The problem is, is that we tend to misunderstand this theological concept. In the Bible, we tend to hear the word sin and our mind immediately goes to a list. And so we start talking about cheating and adultery and lying and stealing. We go to the Ten Commandments and we think that if we could just simply follow those, then we'll be fine. In any other words, if you think of sin as a list of do's and don'ts, you will fall under the misconception of believing that sin can just simply be managed. But it can't. What did Paul say earlier? Look back at chapter 2, verse 21. Do not submit to regulations. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. That's trying to manage sin. Why? Because these indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You cannot manage sin. Uh, Centuries ago in England, they had a rule to try to regulate thievery. If a person was caught pickpocketing, well, they lobbed off the right hand. If they were caught doing it again, well, they took the left hand. But it has been said that there was a guy who lost both of his hands and he continued his trade with his teeth. You see what we're saying here? Why does Paul act like a spiritual hypochondriac when it comes to sin? Because he's saying that sin is deeper than a list of do's and don'ts. It can't be managed by that type of mindset. Why? Because sin is ultimately a heart problem. You could chain a person to a bed, but you can never chain a heart. Jesus said in his own words, Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. I want you to think of your heart as a compass for a moment. Now, there's that trite statement out there that uh, your heart is a compass or let your heart be a compass and follow it. Um, That's not what I'm getting at here. I want you to think of your heart as a compass and as an internal navigation system. And our heart wants to follow a true north. Now, every heart follows the true north that they believe will lead to the good life, the best sort of life possible. God designed your heart to want, to crave, to desire. And at creation, he originally calibrated it to follow him. Following God at creation is the heart's true north. A God that well in his book, Confessions, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So as a human being, most fundamentally, you and I were made by and for our creator. And what did we hear of Jesus earlier in Colossians chapter 1? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authority. All things were created through him and for him. One author said it like this. 
Since our hearts are made to find their end in God, we will experience a besetting anxiety and restlessness when we try to love substitutes. To be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something ultimately. The question is, what will you love as ultimate? You are, and I think this is a very profound statement, you are what you love. So Paul calls these misguided desires, this miscalibration of the heart, idolatry. Idolatry is essentially loving something more than you love God. Do you have idols in your life? I think there's some practical ways to ask that question. What is it that I kind of impulsively do? Uh, Take a look at your bank account, how you're spending your money. Take a look at your calendar, how you're spending your time. Uh, What would totally undo you if it was removed from your life? And what I'm getting at here, if if it's anything other than Jesus, it's an idol. Martin Luther once said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. It's not a question of if you will worship. It's more of a question of what are you going to worship? And John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. We walk about running after thing after thing to love instead of God. So sin destroys our relationship with God. Now as Paul moves us forward, he also says that sin will destroy you. So what happens when we love something more than God? It simultaneously destroys our lives. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them. Now what is the wrath of God? That's another term that's not one of those words we throw around very regularly. I think we tend to misunderstand it because we think of it more like a loss of self-control that God kind of randomly flies off the handle at individuals who rub him the wrong way. There's that caricature of God holding a lightning bolt and he's looking at people and he's throwing it down upon them. That's Zeus, not God, by the way. You see, God's wrath is a demonstration of God's love for righteousness and holiness. God passionately loves goodness, peace, and perfection. And so he reacts angrily towards anyone or anything that degrades goodness. You can think of it like this. God doesn't sweep things under the rug. He's not a politician. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't exist or create a false narrative. J.I. Packer tells us that would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. Now, I know that's a big concept, but you can think of it like this. If we were to take away this element of God, this character of God, if we were to diminish or deny his wrath in any way, we would also have to diminish or deny his forgiveness and grace. 
I mean, let that one sink in. If people really don't deserve consequences for their action, then God had no need to send Jesus to die on the cross. But if we deserve death, eternal death, and then God steps in, and God sends God the Son to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, to die on the cross in our place in substitutionary atonement as if we were the one on the cross but him in our place, if he raises again from the dead, defeating sin and death, well then we have reason to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's what we're talking about here. Now, the translation, the wrath of God is coming, might be a bit misleading. The reason for that is because you can think of God's wrath in two senses. One is a future wrath. It's that final day of judgment when God will lay everything bare and he will judge every human being for everything they've ever done. The second sense, though, of God's wrath is God giving us over to the present consequences of our sin. There's this law that's built into the moral universe. When a person does something that's morally wrong, it ends up impacting them. You see it in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and onward. Three times in Romans 1, Paul says, God gave them over. He's essentially saying, look, if you're going to put something before me, whether it's your sex life, whether it's money, whether it's anything else, if you love it more than me, I will not withhold the consequences of your choices from you. Isn't that true? Sin has its own built-in consequence system. It promises you freedom. It says, don't worry about what God has to say. Follow me, follow me. But then when you start following it, it turns around and bites you. And you don't need to read the Bible. You don't need to be a spiritual person to see this at play in the world. In fact, David Foster Wallace, who had absolutely no theological agenda, recognized that ultimately giving our heart to something lesser than, and he called it a God, is destructive. He said in a commencement speech, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He notes that people should worship some sort, and in his words again, of a higher power because he states, anything else you worship will eat you alive. And now we know from the Bible that this higher power is Jesus. Listen to what he says, though. I think it's so profound that he observes this. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches. He continues, worship power. You will feel weak and afraid and you will, never ever, uh, you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, 
always on the verge of being found out. Now this is really profound. He says this, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they are default settings. Remember the heart's a compass. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. This is why Paul says destroy sin. If you just kind of aimlessly go about life like a sponge and let life just hit you, your heart starts moving away from true north and you walk into something that will be destructive to you. But here's the beautiful thing about God's wrath. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture says, therefore, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You never have to fear the wrath of God. You never have to fear that you're going to stand before Almighty God at the end of days and face his wrath. Why? Because Jesus already did that on the cross for you. Let's look at a third implication. Destroy sin or it will destroy your relationships. Now I find this very interesting. Loving something more than God is never cost neutral. I want you to think of it like this. What happens when you throw a rock into a pond? That vertical impact of the rock hitting the pond has ripple effects that move outward horizontally. So that when you destroy your relationship with God, it has impact on the way that you treat other people. Look at what Paul says in verses 8 and 9. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So if you're having relational problems all over the place, the first place to look is your relationship with God. And never take sin lightly. It always causes us to hurt others. I mean, we've seen this just recently with the Harvey Weinstein scandal, haven't we? And all the various people that have been impacted by that. So how do we destroy sin? Okay, if sin destroys our relationship with God, if it hurts us, if it destroys our relationship with others, how do we destroy our relation, destroy sin in our lives? Is it by practicing yoga? Uh, putting out a swear jar? Is that going to help us to destroy sin in our life? It's interesting that in this text, Paul makes it a command. He doesn't say, try to stop doing things that you really can't help otherwise doing. He says, put it to death. Now, we might be saying to ourselves, but Paul, how can I control that? It doesn't really feel like much of a choice to me. It's kind of some internal passion that I'm just moved with. How can I possibly control sin in my life? Well, here's the powerful point that we see in this text this morning. No matter how much we struggle or how internal the struggle may be, get this. In Christ, we have the power to conquer sin. It doesn't have to control your life. And this is where he moves forward with us. In fact, I want to suggest to you four principles on how you can destroy sin in your life. I think it's very important for Christians to understand this. The first is that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Are you struggling with a sin that feels like there is no way you can ever overcome it? It dominates every feature of your life. Every day you think about it. 
I want you to take that sin and compare it to the cross of Jesus. And ask yourself the question, when the Lord of the universe was hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, was that death powerful enough for that sin? And it was. Absolutely was. When you place your sin next to the cross, it diminishes in its power in your life. This is why Paul said earlier in Colossians 3.3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Peter makes the same point. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Second implication, go deeper than behavior by looking at motives. We like to topically address sin. But sin is always deeper than just simply the acts that we are doing. Think of it like this. Imagine that your house is being ravaged by termites. And to address that problem, you get some wood putty out and you get some paint and you go along and find all the holes that you can find and cover it up with putty and slap over a coat of paint. But you never kill a single termite. What happens? Well, unless you call the exterminator to deal with the problem, it doesn't matter how many boards you slap onto the house, how much you try to cover things up, eventually that house is going to be eaten from the inside out and collapse. The same is true for our spiritual life. What if you're struggling regularly with angry, anger? You grow hostile when you don't get your way. What sorts of questions should we be asking ourselves? How about this? Do I think too highly of myself? Do I worship other people's perception of me? Do I crave power and control? You get to the bottom of that question, you submit that to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and you'll start destroying sin in your life. Third implication. Avoid, avoid, avoid. If sin is so destructive, we must eliminate from our life as much as within our power anything that would cause us to stumble. So let me just make this perfectly practical for you. If it's a place, don't go there. If it's an image, turn away. If it's a song, don't listen. If it's a book, don't read. If it's a liquor, don't drink. If it's a person, part company. It might be hard. It might be uncomfortable. It might even be painful. But Jesus puts everything into perspective in Matthew 5, 29. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Fourth implication. Walk by the Spirit. Where do we receive the power, the energy, and the incentive to walk away from the old self? Harry did a masterful job last week of preaching some of these verses. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, he said, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. How do we do this? Well, Paul reminds us that we're not doing it solo. If you will live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live This doesn't mean that we have no part to play. It means that all of the effort that we exert in the spiritual life is a dependent effort. We're relying on the Spirit as we seek to do righteous things in God's eyes. Think of it like parachuting. 
okay? You can't parachute unless you jump out of the plane, can you? But what happens once you start spiraling out of control and then you pull the ripcord? Well, you need to start trusting that parachute to work, don't you? In the same way, in this life, you and I must jump out of the plane. We must act. But we act in reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit to carry us along. This is how we destroy sin in our life. Now as we move forward, Paul is going to make a strong argument for us about the godly life. He's essentially going to say to us, you can walk in newness of life because of this. You are, now be. All right? Make a ton of sense, doesn't it? Well, let's explain it a little bit. Second point is you put, you've put on the new self. And Paul begins in verse 10 by telling us that Jesus has changed our inner person. Look at verses 9 and 10. And I want you to listen closely to the flow of the logic. He says, do not lie to one another. Now that's another manifestation of sin harming our relationships. Seeing that you have, what, put off the old self with its practices. That sounds like a done deal to me. And have put on the new self. Again, sounds like a done deal which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The idea here is that when you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit radically changed your inner person at the moment of salvation. The Old Testament talks of it like this. You had a heart of stone, and then God powerfully worked, and he changed it to a heart of flesh. In the New Testament, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So why can we conquer those inner passions or desires that cause our hearts to turn away from God? We can do that because of Jesus. He's the power. In Christ, you are a new person. The work has already taken place at the moment of salvation. Paul says, walk into your identity. Walk into the person you're meant to be. Or to say it differently, don't live like sins still in control of your life. I remember when I was studying for my Masters of Divinity program at Moody Theological Seminary, I had a friend, his name was Patrick, and he was from Romania. Now, Patrick was a little bit older than I was, and he grew up under that communist block, that iron curtain that had held so many countries for years. He remembers growing up in this oppressive regime, and during one of our conversations, I asked Patrick, well, what was it like? And he said, well, when you grew up with it, you just didn't realize that every area of your life was impacted. Take getting a simple gallon of milk or a, a loaf of bread, for example. I remember waking up at 4 a.m. every day to wait in line for two hours so that we could have our daily necessities. That was normal. That was life. I didn't know any better. Now I want you to imagine that Patrick now comes to America and he changes his citizenship. He becomes now an American citizen. He is free from the structures of that Soviet regime but say he just doesn't quite realize the implications of it. And so he wakes up in the morning. It's 4 a.m. 
a mass panic comes over him and he gets in his car and he rushes down to stop and shop and he waits outside of the door for two hours until Stop and Shop opens. And then, as soon as they open the door, Patrick rushes into the store. He grabs his milk. He grabs his bed, bread. He checks out, and he leaves the place. Now, we would say to him, if we ever caught him doing this, Patrick, what in the world are you doing? You don't have to live like that here. You're under a new rule. You have a new identity. You don't have to follow those old impulses. Everything is different for you now. Now, he might come back and say, well, how can you know? What if I get there at 8 a.m. and there's no bread and milk? I can't risk that. We'd say, Patrick, if in the odd chance that they do run out, you can just go down the street to Star Market or Fancies or 7-Eleven. You don't need to live like that anymore. Well, Paul is telling us the same thing. You have put off the old self and put on the new self. You're no longer under the rule of Satan. You're no longer a slave to sin. In Romans 6, he says, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Present them as instruments of righteousness. The problem isn't Christ's work. The problem is our awareness of who we are in Christ and what we are becoming in him. Now, For Patrick, over time, he would gradually grow increasingly aware of that change, wouldn't he? Over time, he would learn how America works versus that old Soviet mindset. He would begin to trust the new system that he's under, the rule of that system. He would more fully experience the freedom of being here of a change of citizenship. Well, the same is true for us when we trusted Jesus. Listen to what Paul says. Our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The Spirit of God. Sanctification, right? We talked about this last week. Someone's telling me it's time to quit preaching. I got a couple more minutes here. Don't worry. The Spirit of God is progressively working in us to make us Christ-like. Now here's the question, can you get in the way? Can you get in the Holy Spirit's way? Sure. In fact, it doesn't take much. Don't read your Bible. Don't pray. Don't go to church. Don't pursue deep fellowship with other believers. Absolutely. But God's aim in us and what our aim should be in partnership with what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives is to think like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to feel and act and speak like Jesus. This is the essence of Christian living. The center and the core of it is growing to be like Jesus. And when you do that and Jesus changes your inner person, the next thing that Paul tells us is he also starts to work on that horizontal plane. He changes the way that we relate to one another. Look there at verse 11. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, sin wants to erect barriers and say things like, you can't relate to this person because you're just a different gender or Uh, They're a different race than you are. There's some ethnic barrier or some language barrier between you. 
Remember when that vertical relationship with God's destroyed, horizontal is affected. And we think about people who are made in the image of God and in some way we feel the right to devalue them. Well, the gospel changes all of that. Don Carson shares the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've been saved by Jesus. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Who is Jesus? Jesus is our power to defeat sin. Why is he our power to defeat it? Well, Christ says that Christ is all and in all. Nothing will satisfy your heart like Jesus. Nothing is more worthy of your life than Jesus. Nothing will restore relationships in your life like Jesus. He is everything. And when your heart is set to true north and you walk in that, powerful things happen. Martin Luther died on February 18, 1546. 28 years after unleashing this reformation. Just before he died, Luther preached what would be his last sermon in his deathbed. The sermon consisted of simply quoting two texts, one from a psalm, one from a gospel. He cited Psalm 68, 19. A very simple message. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And then he went to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Lucas Cranach, the painter, offered a final memorial of his friend Luther. The painting graces the altar in Castle Church and in it Luther is preaching as a crowd listens on. Cranach painted Luther's wife, Katie, into the picture because all wise people marry Katie's. <laughs> he also painted Luther's daughter, Magdalena, into the picture who had died when she was just 13 years old. In between Luther and the congregation, though, you'll notice there is a big, large picture of Christ. Luther preached Christ and him crucified. And when his congregation heard Luther preach, they did not see Luther, but instead they saw Christ and him crucified. That's his legacy. And that can be your legacy too if you walk by the Spirit and put sin to death. Would you bow your heads with me in a